Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. Today's show, today's show is a special one. I, th I think I say that about every show. They're all special though. Uh, but this one is in particularly important and it's, it's particularly important to the sporting community. This is around the proposed Grand Canyon National Monument. There's a little bit of controversy in the sporting community about this monument and whether it's a good thing or not. I can tell you that we here at the Arizona Wildlife Federation, along with our partners, including Trout Unlimited, who you'll hear from on this podcast, are working our butts off to make sure this is indeed a good thing for the sporting community. The main point, well, I'm not going to lay all this out because you're going to get it all in the show, but please listen to this this important episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast and because uh, there, there's a lot to learn here. And um, yeah, if, if you're concerned about access for hunting and angling in this monument, access for Arizona Game and Fish Department to do their job and manage our wildlife in this monument, stick around, listen to this episode, and uh, learn how you can, you can get engaged and make sure that all of these important tenants are met in this new monument. Before we get into that, though, let's go through a few announcements from our great conservation organizations here in the state of Arizona. All right, first off, Arizona Antelope Federation, we talked about this last time, but don't forget, coming up on June 10th, they are having their 31st Hunter's Clinic. Let's see, I have conflicting times here. This one says 2 to 4, then down here it says registration starts at 11 and the clinic starts at 12. I would I would err on the side of caution and get there early. Uh, but this is going to be the Arizona Game and Fish Department Ben Avery Clay Target Center Pavilion. The agenda, how to field judge your antelope archery and rifle hunting tactics, how to use optics, proper field care, spot and stock tactics in open areas, how to distinguish bucks or does, how to photo document your hunt, where to hunt. Game and fish reps will be on hand to discuss units. The registration fees. For members, it's free. For non-members, it's $20, and that's the Arizona Antelope Federation members. Uh, for non-members, $20. Youth 15 or younger, $10. New, Mexico, uh, new members join now and attend clinic, only $40. Talk about a great opportunity for you folks lucky enough to have drawn an antelope or pronghorn tag. Um, one of these days, one of these days I'm going to get one of those tags, and I will absolutely jump on this. You should too. All right, then from the Arizona Predator Callers, let's see. Predator Hunting Boot Camp. Let's, sorry, I'm shooting from the hip here, so bear with me. Adult-focused beginners learn about predator calling, hunting, history of predator fur bears, and other outdoor skills, activities, food provided, tent, truck, camping, location, Vincent Ranch, Woods Canyon Lake area, Unit 4A. Hosted by Predator Varmint Collars Incorporated and the Arizona Elk Society. Contact is Wayne Wilson. And that's going to be a desert underscore writer at yahoo.com. Or get more information at www.pvcl.org. Let's see. And that's going to be Friday, August 11, 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock. And runs through the 13th all right good opportunity to get out there and learn about predator hunting from from a great organization all right and then finally let's see from john doss at fly fishers arizona or arizona fly fishers forgive me 
they are having their fourth meeting uh, of Middle Arizona Fly Fishers, also known as Fly Fishers Arizona, on June 15th from 4.15 to 6 p.m. at the Camp Verde Library. And a few extras here, upcoming dates for Wild in the City. And this is, uh, this is an event aimed at getting young folks out into the field. And we'll definitely, uh, these are down the road. So we're going to have lots of, uh, lots of more information on these coming up. But just to mark your calendars, there's going to be one in Cottonwood on September 9th and at Ben Avery at the Arizona Game and Fish Department on October 7th. So mark your calendars for those down the road and I promise you'll get you more information. Um, you know me, uh, I love fly fishing dearly. I'm always singing the prize, praises of it. So even if you're not a fly fisherman yet and you're only interested, it'd be great for you to attend this meeting, meet up with some good guys and learn a little bit, support a good, good organization too. All right, so with that, let's get to our show. This is an important one, so please pay close attention. And if you would like to get involved with this, by all means, don't hesitate because we need your help. All right. Thanks. Listen in and we will see you after the show. All right, today uh, today we are breaking from the mold of our typical podcast. Usually we are we try to keep things light. Uh, we we stay away from the uh, the hardcore advocacy work that we do uh, in the Arizona Wildlife Federation. But with that said, you know, some of these bigger campaigns, especially when it's important to get facts out there to the general public, um, you know this is this is a good way to reach you guys. So so we're breaking the mold here, and we're going to talk about the proposed Grand Canyon National Monument. And to do that with me here today, I've got my boss, Scott Garland, and I've got Nate Reese of Trout Unlimited. So let's start with some brief introductions from you fellas. Scott, you want to take the lead? Sure. Thanks, Michael. I'm Scott Garland. I'm the executive director of the Arizona Wildlife Federation. And for those that don't know about AWF or the Arizona Wildlife Federation, we're the oldest conservation organization in the state. We're celebrating our 100 year and birthday this year. We were originally set up by Aldo Leopold. Some people might recognize that name. So we like to brag about that kind of stuff. We've got about 60% of our members are sportsmen or sportswomen and about the remaining 40% or so are people who love camping, hiking, wildlife watching, outdoor photography, et cetera. And so we're always trying to bring people together for the common interests that we've got about the outdoors and outdoor recreation in the state. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. And yeah, folks want to expand on that and learn more about the work that Arizona Wildlife Federation does in our history. They can go back to our very first episode and listen, listen to all about that. Nate, how about you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Michael. My name is Nathan Reese. I'm the public lands coordinator for Trout Unlimited here in Arizona. And uh, Trout Unlimited, you know, nationwide, we're a cold water conservation organization. Here in Arizona, we focus on you know, restoration projects, state and federal policy pertaining to public lands. And as of a new employee starting about a month or so, an R3 engagement position. So doing more community fishing events and uh, working more on that R3, reactivate, retain. Uh, reinvigorate. Reinvigorate. No, it's uh, yeah the, the R3 program. Everyone knows the R3 program, but yeah, we're getting uh, more staff capacity there as well. So just exciting things for TU in Arizona. Yeah, you're awesome. right. Recruit, retain, and 
re reactivate. I always think the yeah. reactivate yeah, is reinvigorate for old guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, to learn more about uh, Trout Unlimited uh, nationally and locally here in Arizona and the work they do, they can go back. I don't know what episode number it was, but a few episodes back uh, where we had Nate and Jim Walker on from Trout Unlimited that told you all about the organization and the work they do. And as long as I'm on a roll here, when it comes to R3, we have an episode for that too. Way back in the beginning, I think it's number two or number three, did a great R3 episode with uh, uh, Doug Burt from Arizona Game and Fish and Jess Warner from National Wild Turkey Federation. So all great episodes. I encourage folks that haven't listened to those to go check them out. All right, today, today we're here to talk about this proposed Grand Canyon National Monument. It's a little bit controversial, um, but let's start with with some foundational facts and some history behind this. Uh, can one of you two help me pronounce the name of this proposed new monument? I'll do my best, Michael. I'm not sure. I'm sure, I'll do it justice, but it's the Baj Nuavho Ita Kukveni Grand Canyon National Monument which Excellent I'm sure job, will get Scott. shortened to something else or come up with an acronym to describe, but I'm pretty sure that's close to how you pronounce it. All right. And for folks listening, uh, that, that two-part name uh, comes from the Havasupai and the Hopi. And uh, the first part uh, translates to where tribes roam from the Havasupai. And the second part means our footprints from the Hopi tribe. Protections from uranium mining in the greater Grand Canyon region have been attempted uh, a few times. Can, can one of you guys delve into a little bit of that history and tell me what's happened before and why maybe it's, it's not worked? Yeah, Michael, I'll give you just a, a quick overview. Both our organizations, TU and AWF, we've worked on this issue uh, for over a decade now. It started back in 2012 when a uranium mining moratorium was put in place on that landscape. And, and the same footprint as the National Monument, about 1.1 million acres. That moratorium was put in place. And it was only for 20 years. And you know, really the purpose was to study the region and the effects of contamination from uranium mining. And uh, you know, funding was allocated to USGS. And it was pulled only after a couple years. Funding was allocated to you know, a different program. But just in that couple years, they did document springs and seeps that contain uranium mining levels, concentration levels above EPA standards. And you know, they were linked to uranium sites up to 15 miles away. So it just proves that the, the water table up there and the watershed is just really complex and interconnected mm -hmm. and something that our scientists and mining companies don't completely understand the ramifications of our actions. And so this is why both our groups have been involved in this from the beginning is you know, the wildlife and contamination perspective. To get more permanent forms of protection, we've started to move forward with legislation through Congress. We've worked on that, you know, essentially since 2012 and have just been gridlocked in Congress. Uh, we've had bills pass the House. We've had them introduced in the Senate. We've gotten markup hearings in the Senate. But, you know, like a lot of things in Congress, uh, it's gridlocked. It can't pass. So now we see an opportunity to pivot to a national monument. And that's what we've done. And really, you know, the reason why is to protect this region from uranium mining. I think the other, we should probably add one part of the history there, Michael, that Nate didn't mention, which was in 2016, there was an attempt at a national monument. But that one, instead of being tribally led, was really led by some of the environmental groups. And it was kind of exclusive to the environmental groups. 
And the footprint was much larger than the withdrawal area that Nate mentioned. So instead of this 1.1 million acres, it was 1.8 or almost 1.9 million acres. And specifically, and it, it included the North Kaibab Ranger District. And the other part of the history is that North Kaibab Ranger District was already protected from uranium mining. So if one of the key, you know, concepts or one of the key things we're trying to do is keep new uranium mines out of the area, that part wasn't needed. So I think you were getting to kind of what some of the controversies are. And at that point in time, well, we can talk more about that or wherever you want to go. I'll just pause there and we can come back to okay. a little bit more history on that monument. Gotcha. Also. Gotcha. So th this region um, that, that we're, we're trying to protect from uranium mining, it's funny asking these questions because it's like I know the answers. I want to, I want to say it myself, so it's hard not to just spit it all out. But this is this is a bit of a, a not in my backyard, so to speak, kind of thing. I, I know that both Trout Unlimited and Arizona Wildlife Federation, neither, neither of these are anti-mining organizations. We recognize that mining is critical to you know living the the, the comfortable lives that we all live. So we're not anti-mining, but why is it important that in this specific region we? We protect it from uranium mining. Yeah, for sure. I, I think this is a case where it's not in my backyard, meaning my backyard being Arizona. Because like you said, Michael, we're not anti-mining. We're not even anti-uranium mining. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the area around the Grand Canyon, it's such an iconic area. It's a sportsman's paradise. We just don't want to risk uranium mining up there when, when we don't have to. There's other places to get it. And country doesn't need it there. So yeah, to be totally honest, it is about not in my backyard. But if I'm, mm. if I'm king for a day, and you tell me that I can mine for uranium with some even small risk of contamination, um, but there is some known contamination, Nate referred to that earlier, around the Grand Canyon, or I can do it in some place where we've got other mining like Wyoming or Utah, or even a little bit in New Mexico, where it's easier to get, it's cheaper to get, and the risk of contamination isn't putting a place as pristine as the Grand Canyon at risk, I'm sure as hell going to do it there and not at the Grand Canyon. So, sorry, but yeah, it is not in Arizona's yeah. backyard, whatever that is. No, I understand. <laughs> Can, can you well, speak that does kind of cover, I guess, say the energy independence argument, you know, because we can go into, you know, we understand uranium mining is a, you know, critical fuel source for our country, for clean power, for national defense. And a lot, we do source a lot of our uranium from Australia, uh, Canada, so friendly countries. Uh, but there's also places in the United States that we can get it as well. And that are just have less risk and less ramifications to the environment. Yeah. Can one of you speak to the economic inequalities between uranium mining and the outdoor recreation uh, economy in that region? Let me let me take a shot at that one. I can't tell you exact numbers, but I can give you some kind of anecdotal evidence. You, you know, we were Michael and Nate, you were both in D.C. and I was with you guys and we had uh, Jason Costello from Canyon Coolers, which is a small uh, company in Flagstaff, actually a growing company. And it was interesting because as we were like decompressing from this crazy DC stuff that none of us particularly cared to do, but kind of have to do, we're talking to Jason and it was really clear that, you know, our, his, the impact of his business, his business alone is many times larger than 
the entire uranium mining impact to northern Arizona. So, you know, that's just kind of one example, but you could count it in terms of number of raft trips down, down the Grand Canyon. You could count it in terms of the businesses like his or Catula that sells crampons or any of the outdoor recreation businesses that support northern Arizona. You could count it in terms of, you know, the impact of mule deer hunting alone on the North Rim. And all of those would eat any of those individually would be greater than the impact of, say, Canyon Mine, which is a uranium mine, an active uranium mine, which wouldn't be stopped by this national monument, by the way, but on, you know, about eight or 10 miles south of the south entrance to the Grand Canyon. Okay. Well, you mentioned the mule deer and we haven't really talked about that, that iconic mule deer herd up there, but uh, that is a world renowned mule deer herd. Um, Some of the biggest mule deer in the world come from that region and it's very well known and loved because of that. So this is a very important region to the sporting community. So seeing how, and to kind of summarize, you know, th- this region is far too valuable from, from many angles uh, to, to risk further uranium mining um, and, and also development, you know, whether that be wind energy or solar energy, these are all things that would have a huge impact on that landscape, on that mule deer herd and on the people that live there as well. So being that the case, that this monument would protect against all of these things that we don't want impacting this region. Why is this a controversial subject, primarily in the sporting community? You know, I think I'll take a stab at it, Michael. I think it's controversial just because of the politics at play. Um, we see this as a, a great solution, and I think it comes down to our perception of national monuments. Uh, some groups or some individuals see a national monument as federal government overreach and maybe a slippery slope to more federal regulation. I guess where we see it as a way to protect a protect our area and a, a useful tool in our toolbox. You know, as you guys both know, national monuments uh, are a great way to protect landscapes, but still allow for multi-use. And so hunting, fishing, outdoor recreation, grazing, everything can still be had on, you know, the multi-use purpose of public lands can still be had with a national monument, but take away some of those, you know, more destructive tendencies that can happen to our public land like uranium mining. So it can, it can be a kind of case-by-case basis. Everything's written into the management plan. And it, I guess it just comes down to perception to answer your question, Michael, perception of federal government and, and their overreach. Well, um, you know, to, to be completely fair, there are monuments out there that I like to call, you know, hunter's monuments that uh, allow all of the things that you just talked about. But then there's also been monuments that have been put together more poorly uh, without an eye on multi-use and, and hunters and anglers have lost access to those. So I think a lot of that distrust in the process or, or maybe that just that bad taste in, in sporting in the sporting community's mouth when it comes to national monuments comes from some of those situations. Um, but the, the key here is it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, monuments are a varied, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? A varied tool for protecting landscapes, meaning, uh, poorly meaning, that they can allow for all the things we want. I feel like one of the strongest arguments I've heard uh, came from my quail hunting buddy, Alex, when we were all hunting on uh, Agua Fria together. He, he mentioned that anyone who's lived in the Phoenix... Which is a national monument, by the way. Which is a national monument. Yes, thank you. Um, 
anyone who's lived in the Phoenix Valley for any number of years uh, that likes to hunt upland birds, whether it be quail, dove, they've all lost places that they hunted. And Agua Fria National Monument, that place will be there for our grandchildren to hunt quail on. So this doesn't have to be a bad thing. National monuments can be a very effective way to preserve not only wildlife and habitat, but also preserve the heritage of hunting and angling and access for hunters and anglers. Yeah, I think, Michael, to pick up on that and, and also what Nate was saying earlier, one of the reasons why we opposed the previous national monument designation proposal is specifically because it didn't do what you said. It didn't very clearly say that the heritage of hunting and fishing is an important value of this monument. So, you know, we've been working really hard with Cinema's office and Grohova's office and the House Natural Resources Committee and kind of anybody who would listen to make sure that the sporting voice is going to be reflected in this monument. And we're pretty confident that it will be reflected in this monument. Um, but then you've also got to recognize that, like Nate mentioned, the management plan, it's after the monument declaration comes that they start working on the management plan. So you want to have kind of the heritage and the importance of hunting and fishing outlined clearly in the monument proclamation, because that becomes kind of a framework or a guiding principle, so to speak, for the management plan. But then it's going to take several years to work through the details of that management plan. And, you know, frankly, and maybe you were going to get here later on, Michael, but frankly, if if we don't participate and if we're not trying to be constructive about solutions, like Nate referred to a monument as a as a tool, you know, a tool to get done what we want to get done. If we're not going to participate and we're just going to say, hell no, no monument, well, then we don't even have a seat at the table to work on that management plan and to make sure that our inputs are still in there. So right now we're feeling like we're being listened to and this importance of hunting and angling is reflected um, and, and will continue to be reflected. I feel very, very confident in that, but I think that's another another one of those reasons, going back to your prior question, Michael, that there's been opposition to national monuments because people just didn't mm -hmm. trust that to happen. Yeah. yeah, and I think I, those national monuments, Michael, that you mentioned that maybe don't account for hunting and fishing or don't allow it, you know, it's maybe because hunting and fishing groups weren't at the table to negotiate that. And that's something that both our groups, TU and AWF, pride ourselves on is we've been fighting tooth and nail with this administration, uh, with Department of Agriculture, Department of Interior, to make sure hunting and fishing has, a per, you know, one, a seat at the table for the management plan, but is written into that pro proclamation as well. And, uh, it, you know, if we, yeah, like Scott said, if we just want to stick our head in the sand, then we're in for it because this is... This master monument is coming. It's to, it's a goal of the administration, and uh, so it's coming down the pipeline no matter what. And so having a seat at the table is so critical, and you know we need to be proactive with this. Yeah, I, I think, and that's I think very, that's that's very, something we saw from the beginning, Michael. Right, that this right. is coming no matter what. So let's get out yeah. in front of it. Let's work no proactively with the administration. The importance of our engagement. So so that's a really important point, I think, to lay out there. And that's that this is not an, an act of Congress. Um, this is an executive action by the president, meaning the sporting community has two choices. They can be part of the process and try to secure access for hunting and angling. 
access for our state game agency to manage wildlife and be able to get in there and do that. Um, or they can scream no. No matter what they choose, this is still going to happen because it's out of our hands. It's in the president's hands. So to me, that exemplifies the importance of, uh, it, to me, that clarifies that choice. It is not a choice to just scream no. We need to be part of this process. We need to be engaged if we want to preserve hunting and angling in this region. So yeah, no, yeah, well said. And yeah, the, you know, the hunting and angling voices, you know, dwindling, right. We know the amount of groups and the amount of participation is dwindling across the country. And so it's important now more than ever to stand up and be unified. Right. I think this national monument maybe has split it apart some conservation groups in Arizona or hook and bull groups in Arizona, but it's important to be unified on this because our voice is getting, you know, a little smaller and we need to come together to make our voice as loud as possible with this administration and just be grateful. I'm grateful too, that they're at least wanting to listen to us. They're letting us help draft this proclamation language and have a seat at the table. So I'm mm -hmm. grateful for that. But if we start to go against each other and you know send conflicting messages, I think that's where uh, we can shoot ourselves in the foot, frankly. Yeah, I would agree. Well, can we lay out or can can you gentlemen lay out some of the steps and things that we've worked on, us, uh, Trout Unlimited, Arizona Wildlife Federation, and, and some other partners um, in this process? What kind of work have we done to make sure that this works for sporting the sporting community? You know, whether that be monument size, um, inclusion of particular language in the legislation, relationships that we've developed and maintained. I'll maybe start on that one, Michael. I think the biggest thing we've done and something we've successfully done is we've convinced the the senators from Arizona and the other people who would be supporting it um, that the smaller footprint, the existing mineral withdrawal is the right size and that it should not include that North Kaibab Ranger District or the North Kaibab Game Preserve, depending on how you refer to it. And I think that that alone is a big change. And going back to 2016, there were well, six or seven, maybe even eight different sporting groups that got together and proposed that as an alternative monument with hunting and fishing in mind. And it just kind of ran out of time with that particular administration at the time. But I think that probably had a pretty good chance at that point in time. So the biggest thing that we've done is we've, uh, we've made sure that the size isn't doesn't exceed what's currently withdrawn from, from uranium mining. The second thing that we've done is we've made sure that other multiple use is still allowed. So all forms of outdoor recreation, for sure, hunting and fishing, um, but even grazing and even timber and other things that maybe some of the environmental groups would want to see stopped, all of that is still allowed. So essentially, this national monument boils down to permanently you won't be able to drill new uranium mines in the area. And I think that's been a really, another key win for us. And the way we've done it, as we mentioned before, we've been doing it, it's primarily with those decision makers and those politicians that are in DC. And we've been providing language to the, the monument bill that will come in ultimately into the management plan that assures that the Game and Fish Department has the same authority to manage wildlife that they've always had, that they've got access to do their job. Yeah, and I'll add quickly, you know, I think that's another controversial topic, right, Michael, or maybe some information is getting thrown around that, you know, game and fish won't have, 
jurisdictional access to manage wildlife within a national monument footprint. And that's just frankly not true. You know, and that's one thing that both our groups have worked to specifically write into the language of this national monument and will continue to advocate for moving forward with the development of the management plan. Uh, but we've kind of been the glue to uh, bring Game and Fish, DOI, DOA, the president, all together on this and amplify the voice that, yes, Game and Fish needs to have access. You know, it's kind of a no brainer for this to get any sort of positive traction in the state. And, you know, that's been reflected in the in the language. So I think that is a big win for us. Yeah. I'll throw it out there as well, though. We're, we're not alone in this wanting sporting access. The tribes want this as well. And this is a tribal led monument push. Uh, so yeah, so yeah that's right. For sure. Not just a selfish endeavor by the sporting community. You know, this is, if, if we want to preserve land, if we want to protect land, we, people need to use it. They, they need to be connected to it. And that that's how people are, you know, they harvest their firewood, they hunt, they fish. Um, they're part of that land. And so I, I think it's important, you know, that, that this multi-use aspect is included in these monuments because of that. Yeah. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that this is a tribally led effort and, uh, not necessarily a sportsman's-led effort. I think if it was up to the sportsman's groups, we'd like to see this protection pass through Congress. But this National Monument pivot kind of came to fruition through this administration being tribally led, and we just had to pivot our strategy to accommodate that. I wouldn't say that uh, our groups were one that wanted to push for a National Monument, but we pivoted to it and realized that, yes, this administration is going to want to designate this because it is a tribally-led National Monument. And if we want to see at the table, we have to you know, show up and advocate. We can't just say no. And yeah. yeah, just coming back to our point earlier that this is coming down the pipeline. You know, Maybe we didn't want it. We wanted to see it pass legislatively through Congress, but it's coming no matter what. So that's why we're here having these tough conversations with the president's office and DOI, DOA, CEQ, those large governmental entities. Yep. So Scott, can you lay out, and I know we've kind of like gone over this uh, just in talking, but can you summarize the process um, that, that we're going through here? How, how a piece of land becomes a monument and where we are in that process now. Yeah. So like, like Nate mentioned, well, I guess we'll start with where we are specifically now. What will happen is uh, Senator Cinema will drop a bill and it'll be a bill that specifically asks or, or declares a national monument. Mm -hmm. That bill is not going to go anywhere. Like Nate said, it's not going to get voted on. It's not going to get a committee hearing. It's not going anywhere. It, all it is, is it's like, I guess they call it a marker bill. It's something that then President Biden, because he's been asked by the tribes to designate a national monument, will say, okay, that's what I want to do. The, What's described in that bill is what I want to do. I mean, he'll have some of his words around it, but, you know, the bill is going to be, I don't know, 20 pages long or something, and his proclamation will be three pages long. So that provides then the framework for the management plan. So after he declares that it's a national monument, it becomes a national monument. Nothing changes in terms of, you know, whether Forest Service or BLM or the authority of Game and Fish, none of that changes until they have a management plan. But that's the point in time then that they'll start working on the management plan, which will be all the, you know, the devil in the details that everybody's worried about. Um, and that management plan, they'll have inputs from the tribes. They'll have inputs from probably locally elected officials. Um, they'll have inputs potentially from the sporting community. 
Um, they'll have inputs from other, they'll have inputs from mining concerns. Um, and those things will define the management plan. And, you know, it's supposed to take two years. And I think when they do the designation, <clears throat> excuse me, of the monument, they'll say, you have to come up with a management plan within two years, but sometimes Washington moves pretty slow. And so it'll take longer than that. But until that management plan is in place, nothing will change. And that's when we say we want to have a seat at the table for sportsmen, that's where we want to have a seat at the table. So speaking directly to the sporting community, why is it vital that we get this done this time around? My, my take is the first part of the vital is why is it vital for wildlife? And I think Nate mentioned there's 15 seeps and springs that they've already identified are contaminated. Well, even if you put a sign on it, or even if you put a fence around it, which is going to be impossible anyway, the wildlife can't read the sign and they're going to go under, around, or over the fence. So um, we've, we know as things get drier and drier, any source of water up there is going to be a magnet for all kinds of wildlife. And Nate and I have walked around Canyon Mine, for example, and looked at that fence and there's holes where animals get under it. Certainly birds, butterflies, and everything else can go over it. There's tadpoles that are in there that are, I mean, that water is, I can't remember if it's three times or five times the, the standard that would be allowable. And then there's going to be other, animals that eat those animals and animals that they eat those animals. So there's this bioaccumulation and we don't want that messing with the wildlife that we enjoy up in that region. So I guess just as kind of a reminder, that's why it's so important to us when we're thinking about wildlife. When we say why now, um, to me, it's because it could go the other direction. It could go two of other directions, neither of which are particularly good. One is it could go back to nothing and there could be a ton of mines up there. And if you look at the number of claims, there's a lot of dots on that map. I mean, it would be thousands of acres, if not hundreds of thousands of acres, if all of those were actually developed into mines. And now that really affects things. So it could go backwards that way. The other thing is it could go backwards to the previous national monument proposal and go back to 1.8 million acres and include the North Kaibab National Forest. And to us, that's not a good solution either. So the reason for why now it's important is because now we've got what we think is a reasonable solution for management of this area. It gets rid of a uranium mining. It doesn't go any broader than the existing withdrawal, and we can actually get it done. So I, I think that's why why now and and why, why wildlife? Yeah, and I think why now, too, I'll quickly add is uh, just the broad support that we've generated. There's a lot more organization of support now than you know 2016. And when I say support, I mean Coconino County, Flagstaff mayors, the 11 tribes that Scott mentioned earlier, uh, sportsmen's groups, uh, counties, businesses. Uh, everyone's kind of come together around this, and we've all kind of agreed the more moderate or pragmatic solution is that smaller 1.1. Sure. And I'll, I'll add as well, this time around, we have the ear and the sympathies and the attention of those folks that are writing this legislation. You know, next time around, if it fails this time, next time around, we might not have that. We'll have different elected leaders who might not, you know, be, be sympathetic to the sports sportsmen and women. 
So yeah, I think it's vital. I think it's vital that we get on board right now and we stay engaged in this process. And the more sporting organizations, the more sportsmen and women we have behind this, the the larger our seat at the table is and the louder of a voice we have. If this is maybe shifted back a little bit in the conversation, but one thing that I've heard a lot of, or I feel a lot of calls about is how much uranium do we actually need? So, you know, Nate mentioned that the number one producer in the world is Australia. And number three is Canada. We get uranium from both of those places. Um, the amount of uranium that's in this particular area that we're talking about withdrawing is depending on the, you know, you can use different assumptions in the data, but it's less, it's 1.3% of the total uh, supply of uranium in the U.S. So less than 2%. Probably less than one percent, depending on what price you allow. Because when they do this calculation, they say, "Well, you could get it. How difficult would it be to get it?" And the more expensive the uranium, the more you're willing to invest in getting it out. So mm -hmm. they use a pretty high price when they do this calculation that results in one point three percent of our nation's total supply of uranium comes from this area we're talking about withdrawing. So it's not very much. And you could easily get it from, you know, those other states that I mentioned, if you wanted to get it in the U.S. or those countries that Nate mentioned earlier, if you wanted to get it there. But there seems to be this kind of fear of, oh, we need it for, you know, national security. <clears throat> We've actually got a stockpile. The Defense Department has a stockpile and they've got excess um, weapon grade uranium. They've got more than enough for the nuclear submarines to take them to 2060, I think it is, even without getting any additional stuff or refining additional stuff. Um, and it's only 1.3% of the total from our country, not even including those friendly countries we could get it mm -hmm. from. So the argument that we absolutely have to have it for you know, future energy security or national security is also kind of a false argument. And I, I get a lot of questions about that. And you, it's not a sporting thing. It's not a wildlife thing, but um, there it's pretty well cited. And if you actually read the defense department of defense studies and studies from the universities, it, it's not an issue in terms of, we don't need it from this area. Okay. Well, to summarize, we have, this region that, that's valuable to Arizona on, on so many levels in the outdoor recreation space, whether that be hunting or angling, paddle trips down the Grand Canyon, the folks that live there that depend on clean water. Um, and we have an opportunity to protect it. The only people that are going to benefit from not protecting this area are those that monetarily benefit from mining it, um, or developing it for other energy uses, all of which are going to have a negative impact on this, this mule deer herd that we value so much, um, on outdoor recreation, on all the wildlife that occurs there. So to me, it's pretty, pretty cut and dry. Um, and we are in a time and a place that we can do this. If we choose to stay engaged and be involved as a sporting community, we can do this in a way that works for us that works for hunting and angling and, and we can preserve this place and the heritage of hunting and angling in the region for generations to come. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's great. All right. Yeah. That's what we've been trying to say that this, this whole campaign. So well said. So, 
then let's talk about how the supporting community can get involved and help out. Anybody want to grab that and run with it? Well, I think maybe one way is, you know, both TU and AWF were putting together a letter of support that we plan to take back to Congress and signing on to that letter of support, you know, either for your organization. I guess we don't have an individual letter yet, but for your organization, that would be a huge help. The more uh, cohesive we can be as hook and bowl groups, the more we can come together as a community and showcase that our voice matters to this administration and CEQ, DOA, DOI, uh, the better. And, you know, both our groups are making frequent trips back to DC uh, to meet with these individuals. And so, yeah, the more support we can bring, the better. And, I, you know, I think another option, I think both of our groups, TU and AWF, have online petitions on our websites that individual people can sign that, you know, letters get sent to the administration, that hunting and fishing is a, you know, heritage of this landscape needs to be included in this national monument moving forward. So yeah, something for, you know, two ends of the spectrum, individuals or, or groups. Yeah. I would like to add that, that this letter is, you're not buying in to everything. You're not selling your soul to the federal devil. You're, you're signing on saying, hey, yes, we can support this as a sporting community as long as it meets these very specific lined out tenants that work for sporting community, work for access, work for wildlife, work for wildlife management. If this management plan goes awry, awry in, in the years coming, that doesn't mean that you have to like stay all in, but it is important right now to get engaged, get your name on there and help us get a seat at the table. I shouldn't say that because we do have a seat at the table right now. Actually, I think a very prominent seat, but help us keep that, help us maintain that, show that the sporting community can get behind this if it's done correctly. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Michael. And I, I would just say, yes, we do have a seat at the table right now, but Nate alluded to this earlier, and I think you kind of did indirectly right there. If we're not supporting this, it, even though it's conditional, like you say, um, we won't necessarily always have that seat at the table. I mean, if the sportsmen as a general group are against it and they go forward with it anyway, which I think will definitely happen, then they won't have any real need or desire to say, oh, by the way, you know, do you guys want to help us with this? Mm -hmm. I, I just, anyway, so we, we do have a seat at the table now. I wouldn't necessarily guarantee that we're always going to have a seat at the table. So that is a compelling reason to weigh in now with kind of your conditional support, Michael, like you said, based on those tenets or those principles. Yeah. So I would, I would ask listeners, uh, this, this letter will be out and circulated uh, by the time this podcast is released. So I would ask listeners to engage with whatever sporting organization, whether that be elk, antelope, quail that you support or trout. Um, ask about this letter. Uh Voice your 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 concerns. Uh, if if you're if you think it's smart to opt in um, and make sure this gets done right, let let the leaders of that organization know. So, well, with that, what did we leave then, out? Michael, can you uh, link in the show notes? Can you link? You know, I would love to, to our do petitions that, on our landing pages or anything like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm headed out of town. I don't have. I'm not going to have access to get that done. Um, what I will do? Let's see. What can we do there? Um, we, Maybe you can look on the AWF Instagram, right? Maybe we do an Instagram post on this podcast and right. link it in the description there. Okay. The, all right. Let's do that. This will get done. This will get done one way or the other. And I would ask folks, while I might not be able to get it in the show notes by the time this podcast is released, 
Uh, keep an eye on Arizona Wildlife Federation's social media. Uh, keep an eye on our website. And um, you should be able to find that letter in one or both of those places uh, here shortly. And uh, you'll have full access to the, to the full text there and see exactly what we're talking about. That reasonable, Scott? Can we do that? Yeah, I think that that certainly works. I think the other thing I'd offer is, you know, people can reach out to me personally or to mm -hmm. Nate, I'm sure, if they've got questions. You know, get yourself educated on, on this. Don't just, like, fall into the camp of all national monuments are bad. I'm not going to, mm -hmm. you know, this is a bad thing. Take a look at it because the more you peel the onion, I think the more you're going to be convinced that this is the best way to go. This is the best path forward. It's good for wildlife in Arizona. And uh, I, yeah, I think the concerns kind of melt away once you start digging into it. And I think that's something that everyone here on the call, we take for granted because this is our job. We work on this every day. So we know those fine details. Uh, but your average listener, right, we don't expect you to know the ins and outs in every detail of in the history of uranium mining, of national monuments, of legislation that go on in northern Arizona. Uh, so, yeah, please reach out. You know, I'll I'll give my email, Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N dot Reese, R-E-E-S at T-U dot org. Uh, shoot me an email and then we can even get on the phone. Any concerns you have? Uh, I know information is probably tried hard to find online. I can direct you to places or help answer any questions. So yeah, like Scott said, you know, just educate yourself and, you know, dive a little deeper on this topic because it is important for Arizona and, and it is sport, important for sportsmen in Arizona. Awesome. Thanks for that, Nate. And yeah, you know, I always wrap these shows up with, with some subscript, uh, uh, recording. And I always add that in there. So folks know how to get a hold of me at podcast at azwildlife.org. And I'm happy to field those calls as well. Uh, any questions, comments, or concerns you got regarding this, by all means, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm happy to get on the phone too. And I can, I can provide that phone number in, in that email. Well, thanks fellas. I, I hope this clears things up for folks. And, um, yeah, I, I hope people can get behind this because, uh, yeah, it's, Strike while the iron is hot, as they say. Right now is the time to yeah. get involved and the time to get this done. Yeah, we are we're at some crossroads right now, but maybe in a few months we can come back on and give everyone an update. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Take care. Well, I, I hope that helped. I hope it helped clear up some misconceptions. I, I hope it helped explain the work that we're doing uh, to make sure that this is a good thing, a positive thing for not just the hunting and angling community, but for wildlife and that awesome landscape up there. And I also hope that you can get behind this. I hope you can get behind it uh, and help protect this area as well as help protect the heritage of hunting and angling and the wildlife in the region. If you have any questions, any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.com. Dot org, or you can give me a call. Give me a call at 314-401-5651. I'd be happy to explain uh, in any of the work we're doing further. I'd be happy to keep you up to date on, on things as they advance. Um, and I'm happy to listen to any concerns or, uh, or questions you got. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. And uh, yeah, until next time, I'll save you the spiel on the, how awesome the Arizona Wildlife Federation is and how you should be supporting us. But um We'll get back to that next time. And uh, yeah, I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.